Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to this episode of MedHeads. And today we've got joining us Mr. David Francis, the the Chief Executive of PhysioWorks. Now, David, you have a stellar CV. Would you like to give us a couple of the salient points in that CV? Oh, thanks very much for the opportunity, Fergal, to, uh, to join your team. Um, and thank you for the, uh, for the introduction. Um, I think the most important thing from a physio point of view, I do love it. Um, and I like making a difference. And uh, I've seen lots of things in the past and... I analyse, um, I criticise, I ask the question why uh, on what we do as physios as well as allied health professionals. And I suppose the journey has taken me from um, looking after neurological patients to uh, looking after um, spinal patients. Um, I worked in the public health system and then from there um, I did more study and um, did my Master's in Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy and then from there, continued after I had, was 10 years out and uh, did my specialisation under the, the College of, of Physiotherapy. And and from there, I was um, head physio for Collingwood Football Club, which is football in Australia. Um, it's a pretty big club. So I um, I spent a lot of time there as well as running um, at the, the business called PhysioWorks Health Group, where uh, we're yeah. the... Uh, uh, multi-allied health uh, clinic in uh, in Melbourne and the southeast sub- suburbs. So um, lots of experience, um, lots of great mentors that I've developed and maintained contact with. And um, so as a result, um, um, I, I enjoy it. I still have fun and I love to be challenged. And, um, and uh, that's pretty much how you and I met, really. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I'm very grateful for the fact that you and I did meet because you really have helped me out and helped my patients out. And, you know, one of the things that impresses me is the fact that you do have this this breadth of experience and also the depth of experience, especially in musculoskeletal medicine. So I suppose if we were going to focus in on one of your, in your chosen area of expertise, it would be musculoskeletal medicine and fitness. And I suppose that's a, that's a great, um, that's a great uh, introduction to my passion, which is lifestyle medicine. Now, you have this analogy about life being a game. It's no surprise that life being an AFL game. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, yes. Um, I'm 55. Um, and, Fergal, you know, probably I've, if I don't get a significant sickness or I don't get hit by a bus, I'm probably going to live until the late 80s, early 90s, and hopefully longer. So if I equate that to a game of football, so a game of football, AFL goes for 120 minutes, I'm, I don't know, about 10 minutes into the third quarter. Now, Fergal, I don't know if you've been to the MCG, but third quarter, 10 minutes into the third quarter, they call it traditionally the premiership quarter. It's where you basically start setting up the win. Now, I know the win is the end of, of possibly us if we were fed income about it, but what I've got a quarter and a half of football to play and I'm going to play it under my terms to the best of my ability. And I think it's an opportunity rather than necessarily be daunted 
But at the same time, we need to make choices and we need to be directed. But do we need to make choices on how we want to perform? In my case, the last quarter and a half, but it's all relative for all ages. Yeah, yeah. That's really true. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, I always thought that the best years were, you know, your 30s and 40s. But I've, I've recently read articles, and I agree with this opinion that has been published already, that actually our best time is actually in our 50s and 60s, because that's when we achieve the, the top positions in companies. That's when we get to the summit of our profession if we're self-employed. And right now, as you've said, this is where you want to be kicking goals. So what... What, what goals do you have for your 50s and 60s? And, and would you share those with us? If I am, so if my goal is, one is I want to have, I want to be happy. Yeah. I want to have um, mental health. I want to have physical health. And to achieve that, I've got to have, in many ways, time health. Um, yeah. I need sleep hygiene. Um, I need a good diet, an appropriate diet, but I need to put that together and I kind of classify it almost as a cake, as ingredients in a cake. Mm-hmm. And you need a little bit of everything to make sure it tastes well. But I think to work out what ingredients that I need and what ingredients that I really like, I need help with that and I need guidance. And I think that's an opportunity for the allied health profession and the medical profession to get serious about what we're going to do and how we sell it to make sure that we get buy-in. Because let's be honest, we're not getting buy-in. In Australia, obesity is high. Mental health's high. What are we doing? And I think it is not any different than running a football club trying to perform on the MCG. You need to get buy-in, you need to get belief. And I see cases that where clients get buy-in, they get heard, and then they believe, and then they're off. But I think there's a huge opportunity, or you can be negative, and there's a huge disappointment in our execution of healthcare. So when you say buy-in, what can we as clinicians do to help people buy into their own fitness? Because as you've already alluded to, fitness is part of this. Fitness is part of the solution to happiness. Because if you're not fit, if you don't have a healthy body, you don't have a healthy mind. Yep. The two are inextricably linked. What, what yep. can we do? That's a great question. How do you get buy-in? I believe the most one of the most important words is empowerment. Two, if I had a client, um, well, I'll have a number of clients, I'll put it this way, that may see practitioners of whatever um, discipline and specialisation and they're told they need to get fit, Um, they need to get rid of their pain, Um, they need to lose weight. So in many ways, when I was younger, I'd probably say that and I felt better saying that as the practitioner because I've done my role. Yes. (laughs) What we're not doing is we're not listening to the other person next to you. And so consequently there's no buy-in because you're being told to do something without being 
um, without someone being involved with you that can hear you. And once they get the feel of what you want to do and once they can see and feel the difference, you get buy-in and you get compliance. And compliance is really the art form of any practitioner, whether that's from law to accounting to an occupational therapist, is that you need to get buy-in from your client. Now, that's not making it up. It's not putting on an act. Is that need to believe in what you're saying so that they will do what you want. And I see that's a, it's a big catalyst. It's a big, big problem, and I call it clinical reasoning when I'm teaching my staff. Clinical reasoning is listening and is able to act so therefore your client will do what you want. And at the end of the day, it's not what you want. They will want to do it. And I believe that's an art form that's missing. Yeah, I mean, these are, these are motivational interviewing techniques, which, which I use in my, in my day job. But uh, it's really fascinating to hear how it's just so important in, in all realms of practice, including your practice. So, you know, from what I'm hearing is it's actually more important for people to choose to want to follow and adhere your advice rather than you just lecture them, lecturing them. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, I too was that young practitioner. If I told people what 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 they had to what they had to know, I felt better. I'd done my job, but you know, they weren't any better off. And I think that the process of say getting fit is is one. Say in my environment, someone may come in, they'll have you know like an important ask question to ask in the subject yeah. is what is your goals. You know, because they might come in with pain, but I have to be honest, I don't often talk about their pain because it's often usually related to how they move. But the most important thing, they'll say, well, yes, can you decrease my pain or can you improve my function so I can get drafted in the AFL or um, can you improve my shoulder so I can hold my uh, grandson? But the important thing is, sure, I can decrease their pain. We can manage their condition, but what they're asking is can you improve my performance? And that performance doesn't matter. And it's just as important if you work at the abattoirs at Kurirup or you're on the ground at the MCG, it's exactly the same. You need to perform to your best of your ability. And and that's where I'm, you know, my motto is, you know, we're all athletes, we just have different events, and I'm passionate about that. And, yeah. and I think... Um, I think in most cases, compliance can be very, very easy to uh, to apply. So listening to you speak, David, a couple of thoughts spring to mind. Firstly, why is it important that we improve our function in, in, the, in the early part of the third quarter? You know, what, what, what's the point? Why, why can't we just lie on the couch? And then secondly, oh, we'll, we'll go into, well, what, what are the first steps if we decide we actually do want to get off the couch? How do we get fit? So first of all, why is it important? Um, why is it important? Um, <clears throat> why is it important to get off the couch? Um, actually, I'd answer that it's not really my call. It's up to them to make the call. Right. Um, they don't want to get. This goes off. back to the choice and compliance thing, isn't it? it it's, yeah, you've got to have a reason. Um, I'll, can I use another? I'll use another example. I'm remembering. I would get. Right. Um. um I would get a number of people coming to me at all ages. Um, so it can start from I had a 14-year-old um, 
a 14-year-old girl come to me and um, is getting knee pain. And I said, why are you getting knee pain? Oh, I had to do the cross-country. And so I said, all right, and how do you like running? No, I don't like running. I've never been good at it. And then I asked, well, so you've never been good at it, so therefore you just don't like doing it. I'll hear that story, right? And then basically I taught her how to walk, how to run, and now she enjoys running because she doesn't finish last. She doesn't get out of breath. Um, She's moderately competitive, but she feels good about herself. Sense. Um, so <laughs> she's got drive now. And also, I think it's important that you've got to have goals all the way through. But at the same time, you've got to, if someone hasn't got a goal and they say, look, I'm happy to be on the couch with the couch is the, the first deathbed um, on those recliners. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the, the, the recliner, the first deathbed. Um, yeah. you don't, you're not grounded. You don't have your feet on the ground. Um, I. I give them, I want to hear why they don't want, but I reckon it's pretty easy to manipulate them around because one is they're there. And if someone comes into my room, they already you know that they're here for a reason. Um, and from there is then I'll take them through the process. And the process is I think the fitness component, what we want to do is we, we kind of we, we make the bar almost too high because I think, Fitness has got to do with moving, and moving is standing, sitting, because sitting is active, whether you like it or not. That People describe it as passive, but I don't think that makes much sense because when you are <laughs> you're passive kind of laying against against gravity, but you're actually up against, you're um, across gravity, but you're up, up actually up against gravity. So I teach sitting, standing, make it pain-free, make it easy, and then from there, I'll go to the sit-to-stand, then I'll go to walking, I'll go to running, I'll go to walking up a slope, walking up a step, and I'll get their confidence whereby people will say, oh, it's hard to walk for 10 minutes. Okay, I'll say, why? Why is it hard? That's when, Fergal, we get, you know, from a medical perspective, let's work out why, if it's a medical perspective that needs to be addressed. So, therefore, we get all key stakeholders involved. Then, if they get a smell of it, which they do, they get an idea and say, oh, gee, it's not that hard. It's not that too bad actually walking for 10 minutes or it's not that bad to whereby I'm actually riding for 20 minutes two times a week. Then from there it just becomes, and you know this Fergal better than what I do, it becomes a hormonal chemical change. And all we're doing is making them feel good about themselves. All we're doing is starting to change their uh, hormone concentration and therefore we're off and running and it ends up a really nice story so i think the key thing is once again is belief two is listening to them because we have two we have two ears and one mouth so let's use them proportionally um mother Teresa, she taught me that when i visited calcutta in 1984 she said always remember you have two of them and you have one so if you have two ears, listen, speak, but then most importantly, you need to act. And I reckon that still is very apt to this in that we um, we need to act and teach them how to act. And I think all athletes can act. And everyone's an athlete. We just have our own unique events. 
I like that. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing then is that you see your role really as a coach and you teach people, as you say, how to sit, how to stand, how to walk, and then how to run. Now, some, some, some patients who are traditionally minded will say to me, oh, I went to a physiotherapist and all they did was show me some exercises and they didn't even touch me. And they feel aggrieved by that. And I, you know, I've tried to explain to them, well, you know, there's a reason for that, that actually, you know, change comes better from within and, you know, but what would you say to that, uh, that, you know, the physiotherapist didn't even mm. touch me? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, we now, um, we have a, a graduate program which runs for three years at PhysioWorks Health Group. And we, you know, um, you know, the way I, I treat in that I like to, create an independent athlete. I like to teach people how to move, why they position and how they position and they can see it and then they can feel it within seconds. It's easy. But at the same time um, is that you need to say, well, this is the way I'm going to approach you. But at the same time, if your level of expectation is that you need to be mobilised and manipulated and released I'm more than happy to be a part of that because that is the level of expectation that one might be able to achieve. But I'm very, very mm. comfortable that our product is that I can release you and do anything I like, and I'll be honest with you, I think I'm really, really good at it. I can make you feel better with my hands. But at the same time, if you walk, if you breathe, if you sit to stand, you sit the way you do, all that work that we do for the 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever it is, or the two weeks of doing passive treatment will be obviously changed. Like nothing will change. You'll, you'll go back to your old habits. Mm. Your old habits yeah. are your habits unless you can work out and feel and then see your habits. So I think it's, it's discussing and building up a relationship. I've got clients without a doubt and athletes that come in and they know what they're going to get and they're going to get manipulation and they're going to get release work, they're definitely going to get hands-on because, but I know and they know how they move. I know that they're moving well and that's what they need. They like almost need a tune-up and that's what I love is that they know when to come in. They're not booked. They know when to come in and they say, look, Dave, I'm doing all the changing directions. I'm going well from sit to stand. I'm lifting properly. I'm maintaining my, the consistency of my exercises, but I'm just stiff. And I was stiff. I was stiff on Monday morning, um, did a lot of gardening, and, uh, and I didn't do weights for three or four days before that. And I was stiff on Monday, and I could tell what my brain was doing. It was putting me all in these weird positions, um, which I teach. And I, um, I did a workout to try and loosen it up. And then, but I wanted someone to loosen me up. So I listened to my body and I tried, but I needed someone to loosen me up, which is very rare that someone needs to loosen me up. So it is a combination. And I think that um, in finishing this component is being aware of um, new things that come in and new things that go out. And I think, Fergal, you'll appreciate this in that it is, um, I certainly don't, um, don't disregard new fads. I like to see what's good in the new fad and work out whether it's it's sustainable to be uh, a part of, of practice. And I certainly don't forget old old components of techniques. So I think that the, the ability of touch, 
was doing a seminar to another clinic a couple of Fridays ago, and I, I, I think that the ability to touch my fingers <clears throat> are really, really important to me in, um, in that they've got 30 years of touch and feeling and the art form and our licence to have the ability and have the right to touch people should never be lost. So I think it's a very important thing of, of release techniques. Well, what I'm hearing is that actually it's probably better in the long term for people to be focused on active therapies, which are things they do themselves rather than passive therapies, which is what you do to the patient. But passive therapy, you're saying, is, still has a role for certain individuals who already understand the need for active therapy. Without a doubt. There still needs a composite. I just like to... Um, yeah. I, um, if you consistently do passive treatments, if you consistently just give people medications... Um, it is an extremely passive treatment that no, they have no control. Um, someone's done something to them. That is yeah. not, that's not an even relationship. That's not accountability. Um, it needs to, they need to be involved um, to, to get a permanent change. Yeah, sure. Now, another question that I've, I've been often asked is, Doctor, I'm too old to go to a physiotherapist. Yeah. What do you say to that? Um, 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 I'd have to sit them down because there'll be a reason why uh, they've mm. been told. Most of the time they've been told um, you're too old or it's the approach. And it's often key stakeholders. Um, you know, I had a, a person that saw another allied health professional yesterday and they just said, oh, you've, um, you've got arthritis in the back. Go home, you'll be right, take a Panadol like that makes me so 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 angry um or you know you've had surgery on one hip and you're going to have don't worry in the next 15 years you're going to have surgery in the other hip that's just leading a patient like that's doesn't that's nonsensical um so i think we've got to be careful as practitioners or key stakeholders is that we've got to be careful of what we say and you know and um give everyone a chance and i think everyone's got to stop and saying if you're on the other side if someone said to me that I can't run, I need a really good explanation to say I can't run and it has to be definitive. But don't give me the, you know, what my beliefs are. Give me what research indicates. And the idea is, like, you see all these people, just an example of this, Fergal, like um, you see when you're down the park or around the roads, everyone's walking fast. Why the hell are they walking mm. fast? Why don't they just start jogging? Like you never see an animal walk fast. Is there an animal that you can recall, recall that walk? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. We're, we're just an animal. A human is just an animal. Yeah. We're nothing more, nothing less. An animal. Yeah. But you see all these animals walk fast. What do they do? Mm. Walk fast. Yeah. They get injured because we weren't made to walk fast. Because if you watch a professional walker, they don't have many days in the sun, meaning they don't. They yeah. get injured all the time because they're doing something that we weren't made to do. So you get all these walking yeah. fast, and they, I'll be honest, a lot of them, they get injured, and plus it looks stupid. Yeah. And I don't know if you <laughs> It does look stupid. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever walked fast, but I'd like, I'd like the viewers to go out and walk fast for five kilometres, then walk your normal pace for five kilometres, then do a slow jog walk for five kilometres, and I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised that if you do a walk jog, it's a hell of a lot easier than walking fast. So. The yeah. whole idea is they're being told, oh, you can't run. And I'm not saying this is a generalisation because there's some cases, no, you can't run. Do you understand what I mean? For, yeah, so you yeah. Can't, 
We're just talking generally. Yeah, but I don't think, you know, I think of it as a normal distribution curve. Can we stop just putting everyone, no, they can't do this? Because guess what? They can. And you watch mm. it. I don't know if anyone's ever been to the finish of a marathon or a half mm. marathon or a half or a 10 k Do yourself a favour and your listeners and go and watch it because it's so uplifting because there's people of all sizes and disabilities and, and all different types of techniques. Bloody hell, they get a lot out of it. And they're using their body to their maximum ability. So I think it's a lot of belief. And tell me if I'm waffling, but I think it's – I'm passionate about this little bit too. I think it's got to do with us, and I'm lucky enough to be a parent. I think it actually comes back to being us as parents in that if you expose your offspring – to a healthy, a reasonably healthy, normal lifestyle, you don't. We should not underestimate the power of what we've done to the next generation. Rather than pouring energies into someone that already has, you know, um, let's say, um, could be diabetes, or could be obesity, right, or poor health, it does follow a pattern, and. I believe that parents or guardians, that's the where the money should be spent if there is money going to be spent. Teach me to be a parent of teaching physical ability or general health, general health principles of all those things that we discussed before, including sleep, um, um, phones, you know, putting them on and off, interaction, communication, discussion on debate. And that changes the makeup of the offspring. And then the offspring, then they grow and then it goes on. It's called evolution. But I, um, I'm really passionate about that as, as parents. Um, and so do I yeah. live, try and live a reasonable life? Don't worry, I'm not perfect. I'm, as you know, I'm not perfect. <laughs> but I'm far, far from it. But um, from a physical um, health perspective, I can be a lot better. But I know know my offspring have got a chance. Well, listen, David, we've run out of time, sadly, but I really would appreciate your time again if you'd like to come back and talk to us more on more aspects of your expertise. But for the meantime, thanks for joining us today. Best of luck. Bye. That's all for today's MedHeads. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time.